Chapter Thirty Seven, Part C of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Metzler. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lowell. Part Three: The Evidences of Evolution. Section Three: Paleontology. Chapter Thirty Seven C. Part Two: The Evolution of Man, Ontogeny and Morphology, Anatomical and Ontogenetic Evidences for Human Evolution. Anatomical Evidences. Limbs. As with the elephant, man's body shows a number of primitive characteristics in addition to his specializations, the latter being, as we have seen, within comparatively narrow limitations. The radius and ulna in contrast with those of the horse are both well developed and freely articulated so that the range of movement is ample, not only the hinge motion at wrist and ankle, but the rotary one known as supination as well. In the wrist the several bones are distinct such as the scaphoid and lunar of the proximal row, which in the carnivora, for instance, tend to coalesce into a single bone. Moreover, the os centrale of the wrist is also present. The fibula of the lower leg is well developed, and the foot has the primitive plantigrade position of the most archaic mammals. The number of digits is unreduced from the primal five, nor are the phalanges either increased in number as in the whales, or diminished, so that the primitive formula of two, three, 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 three for the number of bones in both fingers and toes still prevails. Skeleton. The shoulder girdle yet retains the clavicle, linking the scapula with the sternum in contrast with all ungulates and with the carnivores. The atlas which bears the skull, the sacrum or that portion of the vertebral column which lies between the hips, and the scapula or shoulder blade all show certain reptilian characteristics. Merriam. Teeth. The teeth are also primitive, short-crowned, of simple structure and pattern, bearing relatively few low cusps. The two premolars which are present are simpler than the molars, all of which is in marked contrast to the forms we have studied, the horse, elephant, and camel. Soft anatomy. Man's soft anatomy also bears the mark of great antiquity, especially those organs having to do with his prenatal nourishment, placenta, and the means whereby the intestine is attached within the body cavity. The mesenteries have still the same arrangement seen in the quadrupeds. Specializations. These are, first, the erect posture, which has reacted upon the skeleton in several ways, for instance, the four curvatures of the spinal column which are reduced in number and degree in infancy and extreme old age. Second, the basin-shaped pelvis in contrast with the flattened form seen in the anthropoids. The form of the human pelvis aids in supporting the viscera while the body is in the erect position. The pelvis of human embryos is at first flattened, ape-like, and only gradually assumes the basin form as they approach the time of birth. Third, relatively short forelimbs, the hands rarely extending below mid-thigh when the body is held erect. This shows the opposite extreme of a series as compared with the gibbon. With respect to foot specialization, in comparison with the foot of the anthropoid the human foot shows 
loss of opposability of the great toe, offset in some primitive types of man, development of the shock-absorbing arch, tendency toward monodactyly, the axis of the foot running through digit one, which thus becomes the great toe, the others diminishing in size and length. In the fifth digit reduction in the number of phalanges is in progress as the two outermost tend to fuse in a certain percentage of human subjects. Still another specialization is the loss of hair from the body, possibly as a result of the acquisition of artificial clothing. The evidence for this belief cited by Matthew, 1915, follows. 1. It is accompanied by an exceptional and progressive delicacy of skin, quite unsuited to travel in tropical forests. I do not know of any thin-haired or hairless tropical animal whose skin is not more or less thickened for protection against chafing, the attacks of insects, etc. 2. The loss of hair is most complete on the back and abdomen. The arms and the legs and, in the male, the chest retain hair much more persistently. This is just what would naturally happen if the loss of hair were due to the wearing of clothes. At first, and for a long time, a skin thrown over the shoulders and tied around the waist. But if the loss of hair were conditioned by climate, it should, as it invariably does among animals, disappear first on the underside of the body and the limbs, and be retained longest on the back and shoulders. A high specialization is the loss of pigment in the skin of fairer races. The normal human dentition contains the same number of teeth, thirty-two, as that of the other Catarini, so that the reduction from the original forty-four is a primate and not a human characteristic. The human teeth, however, are reduced in relative size as compared with the anthropoids. The canine no longer exceeds the other teeth in length, and it is tending to become incisiform. There is also a loss of the diastema between the teeth into which, in the ape, the opposite canines fit. In the anthropoids the movement of the lower jaw is obliquely transverse, ruminant-like. In the human being it is in all directions and partly of a rotary character. This is correlated with the reduction of the interlocking canines. That tooth reduction in humanity is still progressing is shown by the fact that the first premolars and second incisors are often reduced and sometimes wanting, and the same is true although to a less extent of the third molars, the so-called wisdom teeth. The tooth reduction is in turn correlated with the shortening of the muzzle and jaw symphysis, the facial portion of the skull that, concerned with the senses and appetite, in contrast with the enormous expansion and deepening of the brain case, the seat of mentality. This change in the proportions of face to cranium is expressed in terms of the facial angle that is formed between two lines lying in the sagittal plane of the skull, one of which is drawn from the lower margin of the nasal aperture to the ear opening, the other from the forehead to the maxilla. In the higher races of mankind this facial angle approaches a right angle, averaging 85 degrees. In the anthropoids, such as the chimpanzee, it is much less, not more than 45 degrees. The human brain is one of nature's marvels, exceeded in actual size only by that of the elephants and of the greater whales. In relation to bulk, man's brain exceeds that of any other creature except some excessively small vertebrates, such as the hummingbirds and smaller mice. In these forms there has been a dwarfing as a result of evolution, as an increase or decrease in bulk physically seems to be more rapidly attained than a change in brain size in the same animal. 
growth of body unaccompanied by equivalent brain growth was seen in the dinosaurs Stegosaurus and Brontosaurus. Aside from its mere increase in size, the human brain is also of the highest vertebrate type, the huge cerebrum entirely covering the cerebellum, so that the latter is invisible from above. Greater area of the external cortex, the so-called gray matter which is the real seat of intellect, is obtained by deepening and further complication of the depressions between the convolutions. And the great development of the frontal lobes, particularly, gives ample opportunity for the expansion of the higher intellectual faculties. In its subtle fineness of detail, in its ability to record and often to reproduce an almost infinite number of mental perceptions, and in all those other resident faculties which together make up the higher intellectual characteristics of humanity, the human brain stands pre-eminent as the most complex structure evolution has produced. But a comparison with the brain of an orang shows the self-same fundamental characteristics. The proportions differ, but in a broad way the shapes are similar, and the major convolutions are alike. In other words, the two brains differ not in kind but in degree, and that of man is physically merely a relatively larger and more refined example of the same fundamental type. With regard to mental retrogression in the apes, Bibi says, young orangutans in their talk as well as in their actions are the counterparts of human infants. The scream of frantic rage when a banana is offered and jerked away, the wheedling tone when the animal wishes to be comforted on account of pain or bruise, and the sound of perfect contentment and happiness when petted by the keeper whom it learns to love, all are almost indistinguishable from like utterances of a human child. But how pitiless is the inevitable change of the next few years! Slowly but surely the ape loses all affection for those who take care of it. More and more morose and sullen it becomes, until it reaches a stage of unchangeable ferocity, and must be doomed to close confinement, never again to be handled or caressed. Mr. Beebe adds to this observation in a letter as follows. I find that while sexual maturity is attained at about six years, the females seem little affected and remain gentle and affectionate. The males, however, begin at about five years to become morose and sullen. This applies both to chimpanzees and orangs. These statements apply only to several animals which have attained their sexual majority in the New York Zoological Park, and even among them there is great variation. The final human characteristic which lifts man high above his fellow creatures is articulate speech, the means whereby communication, especially of higher abstract thoughts, is made primarily possible, for the development of a mature written language is clearly the outgrowth of an antecedent speech. This human faculty has had great influence in the development of the higher mental traits. Thus it will be seen that comparative anatomy shows very emphatically our fundamental resemblances to the other anthropoids, and that, if we would look for differences, we must compare details of structure and development rather than distinctions of a larger sort. As Huxley truly said, the structural differences between man and the man-like apes certainly justify our regarding him as constituting a family apart from them, though, inasmuch as he differs less from them than they do from other families of the same order, there can be no justification for placing him in a distinct order. Perhaps no order of animals presents us with so extraordinary a series of gradations as this, leading us insensibly from the crown and summit of animal creation down to creatures 
from which there is but a step, as it seems, to the lowest, smallest, and least intelligent of the placental mammalia. It is as if nature herself had foreseen the arrogance of man, and with Roman severity had provided that his intellect, by its very triumphs, should call into prominence the slaves, admonishing the conqueror that he is but dust. End of chapter 37, part C. Recording by Eric Metzler, Albuquerque, New Mexico, United States of America.